Good evening, everyone. So we are here prepared to start our second night of the mission. It's good to see a lot of the same faces here, any new faces. Uh, welcome to the second night of, of our mission here at Our Lady of Wisdom. Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Francis of Rome, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about the, the, the second part, or at least as I see it, of that Latin phrase from Proverbs chapter 1 that surrounds our nave. We're going to look at the part, though. Yesterday, wisdom has built her home and erected her seven pillars. Today, she has slaughtered her beasts and has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Molavit victimas suas miscuit vinum et proposuit mensam suam. That is the, uh, the Latin phrase. So what's happening now is wisdom is setting up her big feast uh, with food and drink in order to be able to invite people to come to this great banquet, this great feast. And so we're going to focus on this aspect of food and drink. So central in the Bible, you see it all the way in all the different books. And also, no surprise to anyone, to our culture here in southern Louisiana. And the reason that I decided to, to do this topic, or to focus on it, was because I realized, as I was praying about it, how eating food and drinking and having a good time plays such a central role in everything we do here at Our Lady of Wisdom. There's lots of McFeasting going on, always different types of partying. And but also, just we know the meal is so important for families. We talked about that yesterday. A lot of the times, families don't eat together like they used to, but this is the ideal situation. We find community, we find reconciliation when we are able to eat together. So, I want to talk about the significance of food and drink, of eating, of meals, not just. In, in regards to life here at Our Lady of Wisdom, like I kind of did last night, I intend to tell some stories, but also to go a little bit deeper. Again, some may be wondering, Father, we enjoyed your mission last night, but like, what was the spiritual point? Was it stand-up comedy? Was it just you reflecting? Well, to a certain degree, yes, it was. All right? I'm, I'm calling the shots here. I'm the one in the driver's seat, so I can kind of do what I want to do, but... I hope to at least highlight, as I tried to do yesterday, but maybe not as effectively, some spiritual point. So last night's point was that the church isn't just a building. It should be a home. It should be a place where the family gathers and finds love and mercy and, and encouragement. And how we experience that, or we ought to experience it, in our own parish community. And so I'm going to develop that a little bit more today. And also, as I usually try to do with retreats and missions, to give a little bit of homework. So, so I want to begin by just sort of reflecting on, from my own perspective now, after being here for 11 years, 
what role food plays with the students in this eating. Now, one of the first talks that I gave back here in 2010 when we had Newman nights every week and about 20 of us gathered in the cafe, it was how to party like a Catholic, how to celebrate like a Catholic. And so I was in Rome for five years and I learned how to party like a Catholic. You know, it, it had a big influence on me. I learned to be able to cook there. I learned the importance of dining, the importance of food and, and having a conversation and how a meal can really join a family together or a group of people together. We were always having dinners. We're in Rome. Some of the best meals I've ever had were my time in Europe, some lasting four or five hours, always in moderation, food and drink. As you know, in Italy, or in France, there's always wine on the table along with the food. They complement each other. And so my desire was to say, hey, we're not teetotalers. We are not always living in fasting. We want to be able to be Catholic and to be able to enjoy food and drink, the gifts that God has given to us, of course, always in moderation. I soon learned, though, that this topic of Food and drink and the importance of food and drink was something that students were going to be interested in because I realized that college students are little piggies. Um, and so over the years, lots of free food given away and, and also people, I don't know, I love it. People are so nice to give the priests food during holidays and Christmas, but I can only eat so many Christmas cookies. And so I'll often like take them and just, hey, students here, and then they totally disappear after the course of about 20 minutes. And so I also realized this is a great way to get to know students. And so what I would do back in the day, going back in the day, I could walk out, there are a handful of students, hey, let's go have lunch at Zeus, it's on me. So one or two would follow. And then as the word got out, eight or 10 would follow. And then I realized my food budget was gone in about a day, so we put a kibosh on that. We didn't do that for much longer. It became pretty cost prohibitive. But, but food is important, and you always hear, if you provide free food, the young people are going to come. And this is mostly true. You know, when you talk about or remember your experience and hear at Our Lady of Wisdom, you're going to reflect on pizza and the importance and the primacy of Stephen's chicken over raising canes. I don't know what kind of antibiotics or steroids they put into Stephen's chicken, but uh, a lot of Stephen's chicken has been eaten. It used to be also talking about an abundance of food. When I first got here, we had lunch with the Lord, which is non-existent now, every week. We had to feed students every single week. And that also became cost and time prohibitive, so we kind of put, reined that in a little bit. I was reminded of a story that I didn't remember. I have a, maybe I don't remember everything, that there was a meal. It was either chicken soup or broccoli soup that someone cooked. Uh, kind of maybe it was even last minute for uh, the meal. And everyone, like 100 people, got food poisoning. But I am not into broccoli soup. So I did not get food poisoning. Uh, I won't tell you who cooked that meal. <laughs> but those who are there know. Those who are there know. And if that person is listening, that individual also knows. But we still love that individual. 
Again, the break for breakfast, you know, exam times, inviting people from all over the campus to come eat pancakes and sausage. And of course, we've extended that now. We do it every month at 10 p.m. breakfast. Pancakes, much cheaper than chicken. Much cheaper than chicken. Mardi Gras, we used to have a big barbecue. When we had Mardi Gras, we had king cakes and coffee. Living Stations of the Cross. This is, of course, even sort of indirect food, but one thing that I always love. We didn't do Stations of the Cross this year, and we're going to do it a little bit differently this year. But when I first started, we had a small group of maybe, I don't know, 200 people would gather, and we'd go with the students all the way into Gerard Park, where we'd have the crucifixion. But over time, it grew into 1,500 people. And it was always interesting to see the group of Catholics going there, and Jesus is suffering. And all the people who, on Good Friday, sitting around doing a little barbecue outside. They're eating their chicken, they're eating their ribs, they're eating their steak. And they said, well, I'm, I'm gonna go join in. And so they've got these people in the Good Friday procession and someone's munching on a rib. <laughs> Not the students, but just, hey, we'll, we're gonna take everybody, even if they don't understand fasting and abstinence. And then, as I talked about yesterday, we've done movie nights a lot small cadre of people who were very dedicated to that and always try to provide pizza um, and it was one of those experiences of spiritual fatherhood I paid for it and so one of those students hey dad give me the credit card and so they give me the credit card because I pay for it but eventually people found that they could come eat the pizza without staying for the movie these were the pizza vultures <laughs> and so we we had to see if you were there you could eat the pizza when i ordered if you weren't there was no pizza for you so that helped dwindle the number of people coming the valentine soiree and again it this is every year we've been doing it, a great tradition the young men provide a meal for the women and a dance and they sort of we pay for it the young men don't pay for it and it's always something very special i remember a couple years ago i think the guys thought that maybe the uh, young women were gonna be running a marathon the next day. So they decided to carbo-load all the girls. We had bread, we had pasta, we had potatoes, and we had cheesecake. I mean, so fellas, maybe something a little lighter, some salad or something. Anyhow, it was, good. It was a good meal. They, they are always very good at that, but now they understand carbs are bad for you. Also, you know, the tailgates. Uh, we didn't again do it this year, unfortunately, but it was a great way for the family to gather. The students would come. A lot of the times we'd have parishioners uh, provide food, cook, some of them even here. We'd come early in the morning, we'd cook our gumbo, sit around and just chat. Always a lot of fun, but eventually, basically, a lot of the times people, adults quit coming because we were in the middle of the frat section. And so you got to listen to all of the recent rap hits and loud blaring music. That's why I would often take off. I'd go, I'd go hit all the different little tents and, and try everybody's food and then finally come back because I just couldn't take the music. It was so loud. But one of, one of the good things was, and we're there so we could sort of evangelize in the middle of it, I do remember one time there was this one fraternity was drinking too much and playing a lot of music, and the other fraternity was drinking too much and playing a lot of music, and you could just see the fight was coming, and the fight started, and then the cops came and pepper sprayed them all. <laughs> so, so entertaining. One other, it was, because 
Because why was it, it was entertaining, but also the music stopped. We didn't have to listen to that loud, blurry music anymore. So this is just how it, it worked. Another story about this, this is one where I struggled. We all would have our little tailgating spots, and there was a year, maybe about five or six years ago, where everybody wanted a tailgating spot, and we used to get two tailgating spots so we could have a place to play games and a place to eat. Well, they said, oh, no, everybody can only have one tailgating spot. And I thought to myself, I'm going to bet there is another organization on campus besides us that's going to get two tailgating spots. And I walk up, and lo and behold, right next to us, they have two tailgating spots. So I was not very happy. I did not think that was just. So I went and found the individual who was in charge, and I said, did you know that we have one spot and the other ones have two spots? Oh, I, 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 I didn't know that's true. That's not true. You can only have one spot. I said, well, then come follow me. And then he followed me, and I said, obviously, we have one spot, they have two spots. Are you going to tell me that you didn't know that? And he looked at me kind of down, yes, Father, I knew that. I said, so you bald-faced lie to me. <laughs> yes, I bald-faced lie to you. At that point, Paul George came in and said, Father, let's go take a walk. <laughs> so we went for a little walk, and then I ended up calming down. But well, look, next time there's a football game, Everybody had one spot, so justice was achieved. And of course, you know, with student events, the university policy, there was no alcohol at the student events, but still doing the best to say, hey, you're going to hit 21 one day, and in America you can drink. Let's try to drink with temperance, how to drink. That's like how to party like a Catholic. And you know, so one year I gave a talk uh, I think it was last year, the Greek retreat, how to drink like a Catholic. Point number one, no octofunnels. There's no way this is a funnel with eight different little tentacles that eight different guys can funnel beer or girls. That's never, that's never temperate, never temperate. But it was a good talk. And actually, we were planning on having a sommelier come in and teach people how to drink red wine and parrot so that we could learn to have a little more temperance. Some of you really remember the old ones. The first year, we had a group of uh, older students who would gather, and I gave them a lesson on tra a Belgian Trappist ales. And we had all these little small cups, and everybody was trying the Trappist ales. Uh, lots of culture back then. And I want to take this point, though, to, in reflecting on this, thank all of the people. And I know there are a lot of people in here who, throughout the years, did anything to help us feed the students, whether they bought food, donated food, uh, cooked, served. I'm really, really so grateful. Um, so many people volunteering time, parishioners, in order to be able to uh, help the students. And I also want to also reflect and, and thank uh, or mention the importance of campus grounds. Uh, when I first got here, there was uh, a coffee shop, but we owned the coffee shop. And the coffee was basically, they tried their hardest, we just employed people. It was kind of like if you brush your teeth and you spit everything out in the cup and then put it in a microwave and then drank it. It's kind of foamy on the top, a little dark color. Uh, but so we sort of negotiated and uh, some good insights. In fact, some of the people who helped us to do that are in the church today, uh, made the deal with Nathaniel, and so we have 
uh, rented space. They leased it right there to be able to provide the coffee. And we did it originally to evangelize, to, to draw people in uh, who might not normally come. Because it used to be very closed in. There were a bunch of couches and people would sit there and just take naps all day long. We got rid of all that. We put in the tables, and so it really has helped to bring about a lot of community. But there are two events, though, that, that happened over and over again that, for me, are the most memorable. The first are, are the Italian dinners. Back in the day, when I had time to cook four Italian dinners a year, we used to auction them off at the Ball and Bash, and they used to go for like three or $4,000 a piece. And I would get people come, and I'd cook like a five-course meal, the students would come to serve, and I would do my best to sort of teach them what I was doing and, and how to, to cook the food. It was a great chance to have a rapport with the people. I just remember one time, uh, very early on, we were cooking some salt and boca alla romana, which is like a little veal cutlet or a little veal scallopini with some sauce on it. One of the young students did not know what veal was. so. <laughs> is going to kill me if they hear this, uh, told him the story of Little Tasty. It the little cow and explained kind of how veal was made. And then it's so tasty right now. You just don't want to know how veal was made. I'm not going to explain that. You just go figure it out yourself. Uh, but it's, it sure is delicious. Um, and then one of the things that we started here was senior dinner. The last day of class, uh, the seniors would gather and we'd have a mass in church. Uh, and I would use my chalice, which was uh, consecrated by St. Pope John Paul II. And then the class would present a class gift of money they had pledged over the course of the coming four or five years. And then I'd spend all afternoon cooking a big meal. And we'd gather and we'd eat. Uh, Katie would make a salad. Um, and we'd have wine because everybody was 21 years old and they were out of school, so it didn't really count. And then we'd start like telling reflections and drinking limoncello and toasting each other. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, the last one that I'll be doing that's going to come up at the end of April. But food is just as important for our parish activities. After every sacrament, it seems, there's always some big reception with food uh, and different things like that. Wedding receptions in Jean Moore realized how people from Guatemala like to party different than people from the United States. It was like Guatemala or was it Puerto Rico? I don't know. There were some big, big parties there. A lot of fun. Uh, all the married and engaged couple events that we had with Robin, Wine and Wisdom and whatnot. Our first Saturday breakfast, always having food there. And then one of the things that we used to do, the homecoming brunch, uh, where we collaborate with the university to have a brunch. Everybody would come for the mass and we'd go next door. There is a story about homecoming brunch, which I will tell, and this is one of the great stories I'll tell today. It's one of the times, I guess this is about maybe a week or two before homecoming, I got a phone call from a guy who called himself Juan, but he had an African accent. And it was really, really strange. And Juan began telling me how he was the son of God and that he wanted me as the pastor to start giving him worship or something like that and I declined. And then, <laughs> and then he made a veiled threat that he was going to kill me uh, and so I called the police. 
Um, and the cops took it very seriously. We got the guy's phone number and they traced it. And, and as soon as the cops called him, all of a sudden the number started going to Houston. Uh, and didn't know what was going on. And I said, this is just the strangest thing. Um, I forgot exactly how he got my number. It wasn't the way the guy I'm talking about tomorrow got my number, who wanted to kill me too. Um, <laughs> and I said, Laura, what are we going to do? So we were on, on lookout for this guy. And so I remember a week later, it was homecoming Sunday. And the week before, we had had some people come from the Holy Land uh, to sell those little you know, olive wood rosaries and stuff. And they had left. So I'm sitting out visiting in front of somebody, and I saw this African-looking guy walk up to me, and I knew immediately it was this dude. Now, the dude had never seen me before. He didn't know who I was. He walks up, and, and he says, hello, uh, I, I would like to get one of those rosaries. And I said, really? We don't have any, but I know where I can get you some. How about you write down your name and your phone number right here? <laughs> And I'm going to call you back when I get some rosaries. And he wrote it down, and lo and behold, J-U-A-N, Juan. I said, Juan, I think I can get you some rosaries right now. Why don't you go inside at the big banquet we're having. We're having get, get some eggs, have a good time, and I'm going to have someone to come bring the rosaries to you. So he goes inside, and he gets his food. I call the cops. And I didn't want to make a big scene. Didn't want to make a big scene. Uh, so the police had been working on this all week. They came and they blocked the, the, the exits to Jean-Marc. As soon as everyone cleared out, they walked up to Juan's table and Juan did this. <laughs> <laughs> now, we laugh. The guy, unfortunately, was sort of mental illness. And it ends up, the reason he, he had uh, the name Juan because he was from Spanish Guyana, it's the only country uh, in Africa that was, was colonized by Spaniards. And so got a hold of his, his uh, embassy in Houston, which is another whole story. Uh, but still, that is one, I think it's the first time, the only time someone's been arrested during my time here. Many people banned, only one person arrested. But still, all of these different events tended to wear at my inner introvert. So I learned if you may have heard the Irish goodbye, the Irish goodbye is when someone, an Irishman, drinks so much and he's so drunk that he just leaves the event without telling one goodbye. I do the introvert goodbye, where at a big event, I'll just leave because I don't want to tell 500 people goodbye. Uh, and to be honest with y'all, is this something, one of the things that I've never really done too much, at least during the school year, is go to families' homes to eat and for dinner. I do it a little bit during the summer. Why? Because by the end of the week, I'm just worn out in general and worn out with people. So I need my little introvert time, my little cave time. Father knows all about that. Uh, just hasn't been as, as, as extraneous on my, my personality now because we're not doing as much uh, because of COVID. But still, I wanted to, to just apologize if you thought that I was being rude. Uh, I just needed my downtime on the weekend. But of course, the biggest... Look, we're getting somewhere. I'm just telling a bunch of food stories. Was the Boiling Bash. When we first started here, it was a small event. We sent out 300 invitations. About 150 people showed up. And it was in the, the, the student union ballroom. Uh, it was a lot of fun. But of course, and back then, it was crawfish. And one dude, 
one dude boiled all the crawfish on site. But of course, over time it grew, where there are a thousand people who show up and so many students, and it grew to this, be this great social event. So much fun. Again, we're happy about we're doing the boiling dash this year. We had the students there, the food, Fred Mills, Father Keenan Brown in the end, starting to dance with all the students, putting his boots on, it was great. Also, food item, uh, what happened was, is when we moved to the big area over there at Blackham Coliseum, I would work during the day before to make a big batch of old fashions for all of the staff. Would not let the students find out where those were. And so we'd have it all old-fashioned and prepare and made it a very jubilant occasion. Now, it used to be crawfish for the first years, but that freeze we had maybe five years ago killed the crawfish crop. And so thanks to the rights who really helped make everything possible, uh, helped us to be able to provide some delicious shrimp. Although, we got some hate mail over that. There were some people who sent some really nasty letters. I actually have one of them. I kept um, about how they never coming back to wisdom because we got rid of the crawfish. We tried to explain it was the freeze, but the shrimp ended up being pretty good. So I don't know. People can be very finicky. So many other areas, though. So, April 16th is the boiling dash, so you can still get your ticket. Let me just put that plug in for that. Always feeding guests and the hospitality for the people and the speakers who'd come in. The priest gumbo cook-off, even though it's the JPG event, so many people would come. Staff lunches we'd have once a month, often very entertaining. Um, Sister Fatima, we used to have the sisters here. One year, Sister Fatima, who was from Zimbabwe, decided to make a chicken stew and kill a chicken on campus. <laughs> and there were these feathers everywhere. She kept it in a cage under my carport. I walked in, I pulled up and said, why is there a chicken under my carport? I'm going to kill the chicken. <laughs> she actually let us eat it. She had this African stew. Oh my goodness, it was really delicious. Uh, even though this doesn't technically count as food, uh, several years for the Easter vigil, which we used to start at 10 p.m. and would go to like one o'clock. In order not to get tired, I'd drink a five-hour energy before until I got so jacked up one time, I kicked a plant over <laughs> in the middle of my homily. And then I noticed that the servers were having a hard time the next year. So maybe, I probably need to get a confession for this, I bought them all five-hour energies. <laughs> and right before mass, I think, I think he might have been there, we all took a little shot of five-hour energy. No one fell asleep during the seven readings at all. It was the best, most focused I've ever seen anybody. And then, of course, <laughs> during lockdown, you know, it was an interesting occasion. I remember during lockdown early on, I was asleep, and at about 3 o'clock in the morning, I began to hear a sound of hogs squealing and screaming. It was Father René Pelsier, who, entertaining himself during COVID, had set up some hog traps on the Pelsier farm, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, caught like seven hogs, and started playing the video over and over and over again. <laughs> Woke me up. And I saw, so I saw him, and, and I had just gotten a nice, nice Japanese knife for my, my, uh, my birthday present. And it was when uh, Pope Francis wrote the, the, the Way of the Cross, 
from all the criminals. He had people in prison, right? And I said, I'm going to be the 14th way of the cross, and my story is going to be, I'm going to kill with my brand new knife, my associate, who's listening to this video over and over again. I didn't, though. It would have been a good story. Uh, but of course, even the better part, he comes back with seven hogs worth of meat, thinking he's going to put it in my freezer. I said, no, you've already put a dead raccoon in my freezer. <laughs> no, there'll be none. So he had to go put it in somebody else's house. And of course, humans eat, but also squirrels do too. So I amused myself during uh, coronavirus time feeding all of the squirrels. So some of my favorites, though, and we're going to get to the spiritual point here, were pilgrimages that we would take often to Rome over the course of the years. Um, I always thought it was important to go to the spiritual sites, to pray at the tombs and the shrines of the saints, but also to go and have some really good meals at some nice restaurants. And really, this is the whole reason I'm telling all these stories, because I can tell this story right here. This is the best, one of the best stories of my time here. And you don't think it's true, but we have photographs of it. And there are people here who witnessed it. I brought the group World Youth Day in 2011, went to the catacombs, and we went to this restaurant called Cecilia Matella. This delicious dish called a scrigno over there. Um, and so it's beautiful, it's, it's June, it's a magnificent day. We're all sitting outside under the trellis and these vines, and we're drinking our wine, and we're eating our scrigno, when we notice that there is an elderly man, 65 years old, who walks in, begins talking to the waiter, and the waiter, very interestingly, takes a, a table and just plops it in the middle of the outside piazza by the fountain and puts a tablecloth on it, and the man sits there, and he sits, and the waiter comes and brings a big Budweiser. Was it two Budweisers? It was two big Budweisers, like, like double deuces. Oh yeah, Heineken, whatever. But I didn't know they had double deuces over there. But they did. And so we're like, what is this guy doing? Wherein the man at 2 o'clock in the afternoon takes his shirt off, <laughs> takes the beer, and just starts pouring it on himself. <laughs> it's like dinner dancing with Frank Wachowski. He starts rubbing himself with the beer. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> it was so weird. And he was there, she knows. And so, of course, I'm with a bunch of college students. One of them says, hey, father, I want a picture with that dude. <laughs> so he went up, and I don't think the guy agreed to take a picture with him because he was too much into his beer bath. <laughs> but he did sneak up behind him and do like that. <laughs> Photobombed him, and I got a picture of it. So we could just go home now. That's just a great story. <laughs> then what happened was a, a few years later, next year, we went with a group, and it was a Sunday, beautiful spring day in May. And we wanted to go to a nice restaurant uh, that I used to love to go to called uh, Los Carpone, which means the boot. It was on the top of the Janiculum Hill. And there are always like bishops and cardinals and priests to go there. Uh, wonderful food. And so I called up and I asked him, are you open? And they goes, no, we're not open. We have a wedding party here. So everybody, I was going to bring the whole group. Well, anyhow, they were closed. And everybody scattered off to go eat. And it was me with a bunch of the guys. 
and it was like Father Brent Smith, who was a seminarian there, Andrew Schumacher, uh, a bunch of us there. I said to myself, these Romans are liars. I know they're open. And so we got two taxi cabs, and we drove up to the restaurant on the hill, and lo and behold, they were open, and we had the best meal. We were there for five hours, uh, sitting outside, enjoying each other's company. And, and so we got the waiter to take a picture of us all looking very sad because we had a terrible meal because we were going to convince them that when they found out that we went to the restaurant and they didn't, they're going to be mad. Then we were decided we we're going to walk home and then I realized that well, I drank a lot of wine and I had to use the bathroom and there are no public bathrooms in Rome. So unlike a Roman, I went and ran ahead of everybody else and uh, they caught up with me and so we had a great time. And then we went to the Rome pilgrimage a couple years ago, had a big party on the Knack. Anyhow, yeah, this we party on the top of the Knack, the North American College, seeing all the fireworks. It was amazing for New Year's Eve. But I'm not here just to tell fun stories, even though you wouldn't know that from everything I just said. The fun stories are really coming tomorrow. There's another meaning to this phrase. We can reflect on food and fun and the role it has in creating the family here at Wisdom, but there's another meaning. If you look at it, it says that Wisdom has slaughtered her beasts and mixed her wine. For anybody who knows ancient cultures, have read the Iliad or the Odyssey, while there's a reference to food there, there's also a reference to sacrificing to the gods, a sacrificial offering. And the Wisdom literature is influenced by the Greeks. And so, you know, if you've ever read the Iliad Odyssey, they're always killing some animals and wrapping the fat up and burning them and pouring libations to the gods. This is what they're talking about. Not that we have a pagan god here, but it's a reference to worship. It's not just food. It's a reference to worship, of sacrifice, sacrificing to God. And so throughout all ancient cultures, including the Jewish culture, the Christian culture, Eating and drinking is always intimately connected with worship. Always intimately connected. Because you could see that you would eat and you'd have this meal, which is a communion with the God and a communion with the others there. There's always a spiritual meaning to food. One of the movies that we've watched over and over again during my time here has been the classic film from 1987, Babette's Feast. I've never seen Babette's Feast. It is Pope Francis's favorite movie, and it's one of my favorite. And it's this beautiful story of this small little, yes, it's Dutch village, um, where there's these two sisters who never got married, and who are the daughters of this, this old sort of Lutheran pastor, Puritan pastor. And they're in the town doing good works, and they know their little community of people who are getting older. When all of a sudden, one day, this woman from France shows up, who's escaping uh, the French Civil War, uh, one of the French Civil Wars, not the, the Great Revolution, but another war. And she is going to stay with them because they had a friend in common. And so she spends all of her life, 15 years, cooking for these people until finally, Babette, finds out that she won the lottery. She won the lottery, 10,000 francs, and that she wants to use this money to make this big meal to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the two women's, uh, the two ladies' husband, uh, father's death. 
and she puts on this massive meal. I'm going to tell you what happens in the meal, but there's no way you can watch this movie and not understand and see the Eucharistic symbolism and the Christological symbolism, but the fact that food has a spiritual meaning. We, we live in a culture that is so secular, and food becomes what? It just becomes eating and taking in calories, and we count all of our calories, and we go on a diet. I'm not saying that's wrong, but we can lose the idea that food is a very human act, one that connects us with the earth, one that connects us with each other, and ultimately one that connects us with God. And we've got to be able to get back to that understanding. It's all throughout the Bible. Food, all in the Old Testament, the different feasts, and wine too. Lots of wine bibbing happening in the scriptures. Why? Because wine is a symbol of God's blessing, a symbol of the covenant that God makes with his people. So Jesus, who is accused of being a wine-bibber, is always eating. He's often eating with sinners. And it's that that helps us to understand a lot of the New Testament, including something I preached about on Saturday, which I'll rehash here. One of the most, if not the most famous, parables of the parable of the prodigal son. Someone sent me an article a few weeks ago, and I love the prodigal son, that radically changed the way that I saw that parable. We think it's about mercy and forgiveness, and it is, but it's about something else. It's about food. It's about eating. Because the question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus to get him to begin telling this parable of the prodigal son is a story, they accuse him, you eat with sinners, you shouldn't do that. And so Jesus launches into this parable, which is really about eating, and I had never noticed it. In the 47 years I've been alive and the 20 years I've been a priest, I never noticed how much food and eating is in the parable of the prodigal son. Whenever the young son goes and he's poor and destitute, he wished to fill his stomach with the food of the pigs. Well, the food of the pigs would be symbolic of eating outside of communion with God. Worldly eating, eating that is offered to the idols because pagans dealt with pigs, Jews didn't. And then he comes back home, and what does he say? Before he goes back home, the slaves, the servants, have more than enough food to eat. And so the servants are the people living in the Father's house who are in communion with him, knowing that God fulfills their needs on a very basic level. Well, he comes back, and they do what? They slaughter the fattened calf. Let's go back to what we talked about. He is celebrating with this meal, but it's a ritual sacrifice. It's a thanksgiving to God. And so here, it is the deepest form of communion we can have with God by eating in the Father's house. He's brought back into communion. But then the older son, what is he outside? He's outside, and what does he complain? You never even gave me a kid to party with my friends. First of all, the kid is a goat. Goats usually not good in the Old Testament, even though goat curry is very delicious. And he wants to do what? He wants to eat outside of the house, outside of communion with God. So right there, the, all the symbolism of food and eating is present in that parable that most of us, including myself, had never noticed. But the culmination of all this food and this idea of communion with God and each other comes in the gift of the Eucharist. 
the gift of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which is a true meal, but a true sacrifice, where bread and wine, the gifts that we give, become the body and blood of Jesus. It's a sacred feast. It's the family meal. The very word Eucharist in Greek, eucharistain, means thanksgiving. So more important than the boil and bash are Stephen's chicken and my ears here at Wisdom. The dining that has been the most important and the most integral for forming communion and bringing the students and parishioners to God is the gift of the Mass. The devotion to the Eucharist that I have seen here and has grown over my time. Masses are usually packed. A lot of people come to Mass, particularly the 6 and the 9 p.m. Mass, even the 9 p.m. Mass are not always awake. But it's great, too, to see a crowd at daily Mass. In the height before coronavirus, we'd have 120 people here sometimes, mostly students. And so when parishioners would come, always I'd hear, Father, I have so much hope to see the young people not only going to Mass, but the reverence they receive in, in, in receiving the Eucharist. I can tell you, I talked about living in the matrix yesterday. I'll go to other parishes, and the liturgies and the reverence that people have towards the Eucharist, it is not like people have over here. Understand that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. And if you didn't believe it, how many adults stayed last night and to see adoration and the reverence and the devotion and the praise and worship? This is the kind of crowd we get every other Monday, but we always have students here at Adoration. Tomorrow I'm doing Adoration at 6 a.m. There will be at least 10 there. Maybe five, but at least five at 6 a.m. But they come to do an hour of Adoration. And we're not talking about people who are staring into space, but who are really praying and entering in to deep, rich prayer with the Lord. They're always asking for it. You know, how can you say no? Father, can we have a holy hour? Father, can we have a pop-up mass? And it's, that's what showed me the devotion to the Eucharist that the students have in the parish has is that you don't need free food. That's why I kind of backed off a lot of it. I, I'm granted, it's wonderful to get free food, but I realized that the people, that students came because of the real food, the real sustenance. If you did a beautiful liturgy, if you had mass, if you had the Eucharist, they were going to come. You didn't need gimmicks to be able to draw people in. And so, so many wonderful experiences of the liturgy, in particular the Triduum. I think the way that we do it at Wisdom here, and the fact that it's kind of like a little retreat. Uh, I'm so looking forward to having my last Triduum here. Packed churches, confessions uh, during the course of the whole entire time. And people really, families and students, entering into it as if it were a retreat. And so, so much there. But also, what do we normally do after the Triduum, after Easter Vigil? We have a party. A lot of our food events are tied to our worship events, sacramental celebrations, homecoming, senior dinner, a sign that there's a connection. There's a connection between the eating that we do here the sacrifice and the communion that we have, and our normal eating as a communion. It is this type of eating that binds us together as Catholics. It's the gift of the Eucharist, communion with God, but with each other, 
that binds us together as a family here at Our Lady of Wisdom. So one last story that gets to this until we sort of want to get to a couple other points. I'm a little long here, but I think I'll finish in time. There, over my time here, 11 years, there is one homily that I've given that people ask over and over for me to give. And I'd say, I'm not giving it to you. Go listen to it online. It is the homily from September 19th of St. Januarius. How many of you have heard of this homily or this story? Raise your hand. Look at that. There are few. So good, I can tell it again. St. Januarius, a saint in the early days of the church in Naples, a bishop who died as a martyr, and somehow people were smart enough to save some of his blood. So in Naples, there is this vial of his blood, which has become petrified. But every year on his feast day, there is a chance that there will be a liquefaction of the blood. And if it is, it's the blood miracle. The Neapolitans go crazy. God's not going to strike them down. It's a big party. And so in 1999, when I was a deacon, uh, this was some WCS, some weird Catholic stuff. So I got a group of about 10 guys. We're going to the miracle. And so we took an early morning train there. We get to the Basilica, and it's packed full of Italians and Neapolitans. Very aromatic. <laughs> it was September, and there was no air conditioning, and they were packed together. And we were all the way in the back. And, you know, you could hear the, the little ladies, sangue. Sangue, sangue, which means blood. Now finally, the Cardinal Archbishop comes out and he turns the blood and it's liquefied and everyone's so screaming, yelling, and they shout, then we can have mass at Mass Storks. And then afterwards, the group of 10 of us are like, whoa, man, we are hungry. Let's go eat some Neapolitan pizza. You know, the deep dish pizza, everything. So we walked around, find a restaurant was open. Oh, Padre, come in. I was the deacon at the time and all of us come in. We're sitting around, we order pizza, and I ordered this delicious deep dish pizza with fresh mozzarella, sausage on top, packed restaurant. I mean, hundreds of people in there. And I started eating, maybe I was so excited about St. Januarius, that the mozzarella ball went into my throat and kind of collapsed on itself, and I couldn't breathe. And I realized I was choking to death. And so I tapped my friend, Father Derek Lappy, at that time Deacon Derek Lappy, and I pointed at myself like this. I was shooken. And he started laughing at me because he thought I was joking. <laughs> and then when he saw my face turn blue, he realized I was not joking. So in the middle of the restaurant, as I'm, <laughs> I stand up, and he begins to do the Heimlich on me. And what happens is, is I remember it so well, because I'm saying the act of contrition, I'm trying to, because I know I'm going to die. <laughs> Mozzarella comes up and then falls back down. Comes back up and down. <laughs> and the whole restaurant, of course, is looking at me. I said, I'm going to die in front of all of these. They're going to bury me in Italy. I'm going to be forgotten. And so this goes on, I don't know, it could have been five hours, or at least a minute or two. And I'm realizing, if it's up to Father Derek, I'm going to be dead. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I remember, this big Italian woman comes up and says to Father Lappy, you do not know what you're doing. Get out of the way. You're going to kill the priest. And pushes him aside. And so she leaves me over and she starts like hitting my back like a baby. 
And it doesn't work. So what she does, and I remember it, she had these big, hairy sausage fingers. Reaches that finger into my mouth, in the back of my throat, grabs it and pulls it out. Spit and everything, and I start coughing. And the whole restaurant erupts in applause. San Gennaro, San Gennaro has saved his life, he has saved his life. And then the woman looks at Father Lappy, I saved the priest. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. And the little waiter comes up, Father, 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 that the man over there, see that man at the table, last year on San Gennaro's feast day, he choked just like you on the same type of pizza. And the man comes up and hugs me and I, Bomb in St. Januarius. So can I just sit down? So order the pizza. Another, well, we give you pizza on the house. I said, no cheese. How about, no cheese. <laughs> so even though it happened before, it's a story that deals with food that people find entertaining. So like really, so September 19th, I love to say the Mass of St. Januarius. Because really, maybe he did save my life. I don't know. And I also call Father Lappy every single year. It's been 21 years on St. January since he stayed. If it was up to you, loser, I'd be dead. <laughs> See the deep bond of friendship that food creates. So last night, in looking at the idea of family as a parish, we looked at, I reflected on my time here and the impact it had on me as a spiritual father. Tonight, in talking about food and drink and sacrifice, it sort of has made me reflect on my identity as a priest, as a priest ordained in the person of Jesus, acting the person of Jesus Christ. And the priest's main duty is to offer sacrifice, to, to mediate between God and his people, and to celebrate the Mass and the sacraments, and I'm so thankful for the 11 years, the, the thousands of masses that I've been able to celebrate here. And particularly since I've known that I've been leaving every mass, which is Thanksgiving, I've really tried to be intentional in my intention of offering Thanksgiving uh, to, to God for this great blessing. Uh, the one who offers sacrifice, but also the father who feeds the family here with the heavenly food of the Eucharist. But, but it's, it's different. As a campus minister, my exercise of priesthood is different than a normal parish, where basically you're just saying Mass and doing sacraments. As I mentioned yesterday, I, as the Father, live with the children. And it is a radical, different experience. And so what, what have I learned about my own priesthood from my 20 years as a priest and my 10 years here? I talked about it on my 20th anniversary Mass here in the summer, where as you probably will not be surprised, I referenced a very obscure Russian film called Stalker. Not in the way you think Stalker, but it's about this man who's called as a stalker who takes people into this area called the zone in order to find this thing called the room, where if you go to the room, God reveals like your deepest inner thoughts to you. And so the whole movie is him taking these two characters to the room and going through all these different trials and struggles. And of course, they get to the room, 
I'm not going to tell you. It's three and a half hours long. You're not going to watch it. Uh, you really should. It's awesome. Um, and they decide not to go into the room, and then he just sort of struggles with his own disappointment. And I realized this is what a priest is. The priest is the one who says, I am going to guide you to the room, through the zone. I'm going to try to help you to understand that God exists and that he loves you. And my meditation was on how the stalker fails, and so often I fail as a priest in trying to lead others to Christ. But still, it's that journey, that going through the journey, is that we do, or I do as a priest. As a normal priest, you don't really journey with people. You do, but you journey with them when they're on mass. Here, you live with them, you see them grow, you journey with them. That existence as a stalker, talking to them, leading worship with them. But the fact is, as a priest here on the campus ministry, it's not the typical priest who's in the sanctuary all the time, who operates in the sanctuary. Most people know and judge their priest by the one hour they see them in the week, and not even the one hour a week, it's the 10-minute homily. That's what they judge the priest by. There's never any interaction. They don't know who the priest is. Students who are involved here, a lot of the parishioners know who the priest is because not behind the veil, not behind the sanctuary. And that experience of priesthood, radically different than the one that's behind the desk or in the office or in the sanctuary, has made me understand that it is a priesthood like Christ, who was a true priest, who wasn't always in the sanctuary offering worship. He was exposed. He was vulnerable. He was in the midst of the sheep, as Pope Francis talks about. And so there is a great opportunity, but there's a great risk. Jesus took that risk. That's his vulnerability right there, because that's his ultimate sacrifice. And so, to be able to journey with young people who are searching for answers, who are searching for their identity, and to be able to do it, not by just saying, just read this book, my journeying with them has helped me understand in a much deeper way the nature of Christ's priesthood and immersed in the reality of the world and the situation and his willingness to enter into the suffering and the darkness. Now, I can't have a mission where I don't, A, quote St. Therese, I did that last night, B, quote Cardinal Ratzinger. There's a few other people I'm going to quote him tomorrow, so I'll wipe it up. You know who they are. But Cardinal Ratzinger, who writes so beautifully about this, he says, Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted, to share in the temptations of his people and of the world, to bear our misery, to conquer the foe, and so to open the way for us to the promised land. It seems to me that all of this belongs in a particular manner to the office of the priest, to be exposed in the front line to the temptations and necessities of any given time to suffer the sufferings of faith at a given time with others and for others. But a certain period, philosophy, science, and political power create obstacles to the faith. That's our time. It is to be expected that priests and religious should feel it even before the lay folk. And that's what the priest is. That's what I've come to understand. You're going to get shot at. You're going to be like Jesus. Have to deal with that, but the risk is worth it. The vulnerability is worth it. And so what happens then is Jesus, because of his willingness to take the risk to enter into our own mess, he becomes priest and victim. His own people turn on him. Priest and victim. 
He becomes the living host. Host means that I am having people, or he is having people live off of him. When we receive the host, the word parasite has a negative connotation, but that's what we are. When we receive the gift of the Eucharist, we go to the table, we are living off of the body of Christ. He is the host, we are the parasites. We are drawing life from him. And so, my life as a priest, in a certain sense, everyone's life, that's what we do. To share in the priesthood of Christ means you are going to give yourself to others as imperfectly as you do in order that others might live. Praying that your sacrifice is worthy and good. Parents do it. Mothers particularly do it. Mothers' bodies are the host. Our children live off of that. And so it drains you. You're vulnerable to drain you. At the end of every academic year, I am ready to get out of the student center. I do not want to see you until next year. But after a week or so, I get my, my wits about myself, and then by the time August comes, I'm ready for the students to come back. I remembered, I knew that that was a reality. I'm going to mention the name when I missed Brad UT. Brad UT, we'll talk about tomorrow along with a few other characters, when I said, well, I really miss Brad, because I want to kill Brad, because he was here at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on the last day of school. I said, get out of here! But then I really miss Brad. And then Brad's done some great stuff now. Shout out to Brad in case he, Bradley in case he is watching. He's from Laplace. Uh, inside joke. Sorry about that. But it is. It's worth it. All the sacrifice. Parents know it. Families know it. Fathers know it. You're drained, but it's worth it because you are giving life to your children family existence, but it's also a Eucharistic existence, giving life so that others may live. And so these are great lessons that I've learned about my own priesthood that I do hope to take and somehow be able to share with the seminarians. And like I did last night, I want to close with Our Lady again. Um, I do a lot of weddings here, and it's been a great blessing. And if I get to choose the gospel nine times out of ten, I'm going to choose the wedding at Cana, John chapter 2. Love it. And why is this so appropriate here? Because it is a wedding feast. The Jewish wedding feast lasted for days. You think we Cajuns know how to party? They know how to party. Lots of food, lots of wine, lots of drink. And Jesus and his mother, they were all there. They were invited to the party. And what happens is they run out of wine and so Christ changes the water into wine. Not just some Mogan David, not some Strawberry Hill, but the best wine. It's like some silver oak or something, some Camus. You know, one, one time I was out at a restaurant or something or a baseball game or whatever, and I had a little glass of wine, and someone came up to me, Father, I can't believe you're drinking wine and you're a priest. Priests don't drink. And I said, if Jesus wanted us to drink water, he wouldn't have turned it into wine. <laughs> so, but why? why? Why does Jesus do this? The miracle, it's symbolic of the covenant. The covenant, the superabundance of grace that's given. And he does it at the wedding, the beginning of his ministry, to show that he is the bridegroom come to enter the covenant and marry the bridegroom, the church. But the one who notices that the wine is lacking and who doesn't want the couple to be ashamed. What a shame that would be. Embarrassed, you run out of wine. She is the one who notices. Mary is the one who notices. 
and goes to Jesus in confidence. Do this favor. And he complains, but she doesn't even say that. Whatever. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. She knows he's going to do it. And so in the same way, we have to have confidence that Our Lady is looking out for us for whenever our wine fails, whenever we are lacking the resources. We can ask her to help, but she's there watching, always willing to intercede for us with her son. And we need to have that same confidence in Jesus and her ability to intercede for us and that willingness always to obey Christ. So, said, I'm going to give some homework. I'll kind of do this as quickly as I can. I want to take lessons on a parish level about what it means to be a family, what food and drink means to help form us both in a secular and a spiritual way. And I've seen it in my own priesthood and how I've been able to apply it in my own state of life. And I want to encourage you, and I'll talk a little about what we did last night and tonight, is for some homework. How does this affect you in your state of life? There is some spiritual purpose of this. It's not just me telling funny stories. Last night with the family, whatever state of life you're in, what have you done to create a home in your house that's welcoming and safe for others? Or in your heart to have a home, the domestic church? Is it a place of mercy and compassion? How do you reflect to those around you the Father's love? Are you involved not only in your own life, in the domestic church, but are you involved in the parish, giving back? Make that examination of conscience and maybe a resolution of how we can be more involved and dedicated as family members. And the food, of course, temperance and food and drink. Eating too much, am I drinking too much? What is our attitude towards food? Which is interesting, we don't think about that. Do we just approach food as just nutrients? Or we don't even think about what we're eating or when we're eating? We don't want to become so particular about it and obsessive about it. That's, that's the wrong way of approaching it too. But do we see the spiritual dimension? And are we thankful knowing where the food comes from? Actually, I find this interesting. If anyone wants to explore more, I have two books. One's called The Hungry Soul by Dr. Leon Koss, Eating and the Perfecting of Our Nature. I'm going to write a whole book about the philosophy and theology of eating. And another one by Norman Wordsba, Food and Faith. And again, these are some interesting reflections. Actually, some pretty good spiritual reading. I'm sure there are a number of other books that you could read. And what role does liturgy, the Mass, the Eucharist play in your faith, in our faith? Is it just something we come to do, or does it animate everything? Is the food that we eat at the table of God connected to the other food that we eat? Does it impact our daily lives? What is our own willingness to sacrifice ourselves, to be the host for those people in our lives? Those are some things to meditate upon. We'll come back tomorrow with the last phrase, which, if you see, relinquish your childishness and live and walk in the way of prudence. So we're going to talk about being an idiot, being childlike, making mistakes, being stupid, and how that leads to prudence and to wisdom. So, oh, trust me, tomorrow's the most entertaining night. <laughs> so let's close with a prayer. It is the collect from the Mass uh, dedicated to Mary uh, at the wedding of Cana. Oh, Holy Father, and your divine wisdom and love, you chose that the Blessed Virgin Mary should play her part in the mysteries of our salvation. 
granted by heeding the words of Christ's mother, may we do what he commands in the gospel he has given. Who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. And so thanks again for coming. Uh, like I said yesterday, um, what we're doing, we normally take a mission collection. Of course, instead of going to the mission speaker, uh, the collection is going to go towards our, our parish Linton Appeal, which is going to go to support men's ministry. And so 